This is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. I'm Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer for Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Hey, everybody. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a General Surgeon and Chief Medical Officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital DeSoto and Chief Quality Officer for the Baptist System. And hi, everyone. I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine physician and the Chief Medical Information Officer for the Baptist System. Well, today we are so excited. We have Dr. Simon Dodds with us, and we're going to be talking about healthcare systems engineering. But before we jump in to talk about healthcare systems engineering, Dr. Dodds, if you would tell us a little bit about yourself, where do you work at, what's your role, and uh, tell us a little more about you, and we'll jump into this conversation. Hi. Good day, everyone, and uh, thank you so much for this opportunity to join you and uh, talk about um, a subject which I'm passionate about. And um, yeah, I'll start with a little bit of background. So um, I'm a currently work as a general surgeon uh, in the UK, and my background is slightly unusual in that I originally uh, studied two degrees. The first degree was in medicine, and then the second degree was in computer science. And this was quite a long time ago now. So this was before the internet was invented, and mobile phones and laptops and things like that. So what I was trained as would now be called a digital assistant engineer. So at the end of that, I then had to make a choice to do digital systems or uh, human systems. And I decided to do both. Uh, so I continued down the medical path. Uh, qualified as a doctor in 1985, then went down surgical training and then uh, ended up specialising as a general and vascular surgeon. But I kept my um, computer science and digital technology interest alive throughout that. Uh, and that came in very useful during my research period when I was doing research in vascular hemodynamics. Anyway, coming uh, a bit closer to the present. I've been a consultant surgeon here in the UK for a little over 20 years. And when I first started as a consultant, I inherited uh, a practice from my predecessor, um, which was pretty typical for the UK. Um, I think the simple word that would describe it was chaos. So my first clinic as a consultant in a new hospital that I'd never worked in before, so at the end of the clinic, I sat down with the new team I'd only met probably that day. And I sort of held my head in my hands and said, is it always like this? And they said, yep, it's always like this. And I said, so what are we going to do about that? And they said, well, it's always been like this. So it's always going to be like this. And I said, well, I don't know if it is actually. So um, they were a little bit surprised. They obviously thought, oh, here we've got a new new green consultant thinks he can change the world. And, you know, we'll beat him into shape in a few weeks. <laughs> but the uh, the reality of the situation was the reason the clinic was chaotic it was a very simple design error in it in the clinic scheduling. So which I'd spotted because um, as a computer scientist, a lot of what we're taught uh, in operating systems design and uh, is scheduling theory. So. I knew exactly what the um, what the problem was, and I said, "Well, let's just change the scheduling of the way the clinic schedule you know works." And they said, "Well, well that's clearly not going to work because if it was that easy, we'd have already done it, you know." And I said, "Well, let's let's give it a go, shall we?" Uh, and we did, and the, the chaos disappeared immediately and didn't come back. So 
uh, they were very surprised. I wasn't so surprised by that. What I was a little bit more surprised by was how come it had got to that state and had been like that for a long time. And that's really when I started to think, well, hang on a minute, maybe this um, interest in design and uh, computer design in this case, but design principles that are generic might be more useful than I thought it was going to be. Uh, and that's when I started to think about that. And also the question was, if it worked so well in, in my clinic, was that just a random rare event? Or would, is this a more generic opportunity? And that's when I got interested uh, in the actual application of um, design, process design in this case, system design. And at the time um, in the UK, the whole lean um, movement was really getting going. This is about 20 years ago and everyone was saying lean was the answer and the um, IHI quality improvement um, message was getting heard. The Cross in the Chasm paper had been recently published. So everyone was really excited about the quality improvement, lean, little bit on Six Sigma, that type of things. Um, and there was a big push in the UK to, to take that approach. I did get involved in that a bit, but I, had to, I have to say I, I kept out of that largely mainly because um, I was applying the design methodology and engineering methodology in my own practice and getting very good results. So I sort of didn't need to learn something else as well. Um, so that's that's where, where it all started in my, my own clinical practice. Um, and it's sort of grown from there really, um, because what I realized was that the methods I was using, which I'd been taught, I hadn't invented anything, were very well established outside healthcare, but appear to be somewhat um, novel inside healthcare. So that's when I I got into the um, okay. So what is it? What is it? What am I doing? And what I realised some years later, actually, that what I was doing was translating the systems engineering methods which I'd been taught many years before into the healthcare context and adapting them. Um, as I went, because the healthcare context is very, very different from a, for example, a manufacturing context or an IT context. And that sort of, that sort of brings us up to date, really. That's what, that's what I do. Well, Simon, that's a, that's a great history and story. Uh, before we talk about healthcare system, systems design, I do have a question. Sure. Because I'm fascinated with the history of healthcare in the UK. And when I was training at Vanderbilt, one of my attendings, he trained at Johns Hopkins and all of their residents, their general surgery residents, they would do six months hmm. in the UK. And he told me there that the surgeons were not called doctor, that they were called Mr. And uh, is that still <laughs> the case? And, and, and tell us a little bit about that and, and, and oh, why, yeah. the, why, why the difference. Yes, um, they are actually. Um, and the, re the reason for it is historical, as you might imagine. So uh, in the, I think it was 16th century in, in, in England, um, we had a king on the throne called King Henry VIII. You might have heard of King Henry VIII. Sure. Yeah, and he um, he was handing out royal charters, and one royal charter was handed out to physicians to call, create the Royal College of Physicians, um, and they would they call themselves doctors, and the surgeons or the barber surgeons as they were then known were very upset about this. Yeah. You see. 
and they said we want our we want a college as well yes but we want to differentiate ourselves from the physicians because you know sure. uh, uh, and they has they use some very colorful language which i'll repeat on a podcast um and in order to differ and the king henry said of course you know you can have a royal college as well and the surgeons decided to differentiate themselves from the physicians by retaining this the um title mister so that is it's purely historical we all do the same medical degrees so we're all doctors we all train as doctors but in order to don't not get confused with physicians we we then go back to calling ourselves mrs or miss or mrs nowadays Okay. So, so HF, I was a little worried, you know, when we started this, you know, I have two surgeons against an internist, although, you know, he's a computer scientist, which I, I fall into that category as well. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, that's the way I've always thought of y'all surgeons, just as, as barbers that we send patients to, to cut that's up it. and then we that's do the it. real medicine. Yeah, absolutely. Other stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You kind of clean up the mess afterwards, but, but <laughs> talking about healthcare systems, you know, we, we understand that a system is a it's a collection of complex inter, uh, interrelated parts yeah. that are working together to try yeah. to achieve the aim yeah. of the system. When, when when you're looking at whatever process or whatever system you're trying to improve or trying to set up, how, how do you approach uh, what, what's your method for for uh, for doing that? To, to talk to us a little bit about that. Do, do you have a standard structured uh method that you use well i actually have two because i was taught two different methods which are quite different from the other so in medicine i was taught the standard you know medical model uh which is uh, diagnosis before treatment so um a problem presents itself you diagnose the root cause of the problem as far as you can and then with that understanding of the root cause then you can select an evidence-based medical intervention or surgical intervention or a bit of both quite often um in engineering it's um just as rigorous a methodology but it starts it starts from purpose it's, it starts with the outcome and works backwards whether it's medicine we tend to work from the problem forwards um, and what's interesting is that those two perspectives when you bring them together is actually very powerful because i off i if i do think of systems healthcare systems as in the delivery systems of healthcare um, rather like a patient in the sense of if the system isn't working very well or as well as we'd like, it will present with symptoms such as cues and delays and distressed patients and distressed staff and budgets and safety issues and litigation and all that sort of stuff. Um, uh, and those patterns of behaviour are very, sim very similar in many ways to the patterns of symptoms that patients present with. And we know in medicine and surgery that once we learn to recognize the patterns, um, it actually sh it actually quite a quick shortcut to deciding what the likely cause is and therefore what the best or quickest route to treatment. And it's exactly the same with systems. Complex and the human body is a complex adaptive system. Um, what we forget sometimes is it does 99.0 of the work and we as physicians and surgeons just do a little bit of nudging the body back into homeostasis but it does it does the hard work um, when we're designing systems either it systems or delivery systems we don't have that same homeostatic basis so we have to build homeostasis into our system designs so they become self-sustaining self, 
monitoring and actually self-healing uh, and that's one of the really interesting areas of complex adaptive systems engineering is how do we design build a self-healing system just as the human body is so i i I've sort of have these two perspectives and it's really interesting to put the two together because they, they complement each other beautifully it really is a very powerful combination yeah says, i mean you might might have noticed my eyes uh got a little excited when you're talking about your your schedule and how you use computer science in order to, yeah. to fix that when you started we, we've actually had a couple of conversations on this podcast about about that process and about queuing yeah. theory and other yeah. things that that hf um uh, tolerates but uh, <laughs> uh, talk to us a little bit about how what what sort of problems have you brought your um, your health science engineering background to, and, and what sort of tools are you using in order to to solve them? Yeah, um, so I mentioned briefly the 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 first one that I sort of encountered as a as a surgeon, which which is a clinic, um, and that's quite a common that's quite a common one. It's a relatively straightforward one. Um, so a clinic um, would be called a microsystem. So an operating theater would be called a microsystem. Um, any any of the small parts of the hospital are a collection of microsystems which work together. The it's very straightforward how to diagnose and redesign something like a clinic schedule. Um, unfortunately, people in healthcare are not taught how to do that, which is I think is a shame because it's actually very easy and very quick to do. Um, so the tools and techniques of doing that are, are known. The more challenging problems are when you have a number of microsystems which are connected together, either along a patient pathway. For example, you might have um, an outpatient department and then a, a diagnostic department and then say a surgical department. And the, but the patient goes from one department to the other along what we would call a clinical pathway. Mm -hmm. uh, and what we often find is that although the microsystem parts of that might work reasonably well it's the relationships between them and the synchronization between the parts which is usually the problem um certainly in the uk anyway so one example where um i got um involved in again a chaotic process uh, always behaving in a chaotic process was a chemotherapy unit where um there's a lot of distress uh, from patients and staff about the chaos within their department. And what we did with that one was we used um, a technique called diagnostic simulation modeling, where you create a simulation model of the system, the chaotic system, which you can then use as a diagnostic tool. Um, and that revealed that they had a particular policy that they were using, which was the prime cause of their chaos. And I suspected that's what it was, but I couldn't prove it either without doing the simulation modeling or doing a test of change. So the this, this simulation modeling, you're doing that all, you know, on a computer program? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And yeah. what sort of variables are you feeding into it? It depends on the context. Um, well, in that, so, in that scenario. So in that scenario, we'd say it was a chemotherapy unit and um, you had patients arriving, you have a physical layout of the unit, you have staff who have particular jobs to do. Um, and what we did with that one was we had to measure the process first because we needed to you know, bed the model in reality, build a model from that, verify the model against the measured data, 
and then we could use the model to explore um, options in terms of what might be causing the behavior we were observing. So that's why it's called diagnostic modeling. Um, so were you so the things you're measuring were like time to do various tasks yeah. and then you'd yeah. feed that in almost um, to like a um, you know critical path type model to see where the the weak points were or what no so it's, it, that's that's a traditional way of doing it actually it's 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 a bit more interesting than that actually what you do is you create um a model of the system which is behaving like the system so you don't actually know what the critical path is okay. um, but then you can <clears throat> you can um, change parameters on the model that you can't easily change in reality. It's rather like doing a controlled trial or a controlled experiment. Mm -hmm. Very hard to do a controlled experiment in a real system because you can't you can't fix certain variables, whereas on a model of a system you can. So that's um, that revealed that there was a policy which which proved which we thought was the primary problem. The policy itself was cost nothing to fix. It was simple. It's a simple scheduling issue really. In this case, it was a space scheduling issue rather than a flow scheduling issue. And um, what we then did is use the model to explore the, what would then happen if we changed the schedule. So it's like a predictive, like a predictive tool as well. And it it said the chaos would go away. So we presented the results back to the team. Uh, this is a very very characteristic story, shouldn't they? So, well, that's not possible because if it was that easy, we'd have already done it. You see the theme here, right? Um, and, and just for clarity, when you say chaos, what do you what do you mean by that? Uh, uh, well, <laughs> queues of people getting very upset about waiting, staff okay. running around like long no wait asked, times, yeah. long wait times, stress, uh, you know. Firefighting. Sure. Let's call let's call it firefighting. Const, constant firefighting. Okay. Yeah. Um. And what what we then did, we said, well, it looks like if we change this policy, the little things will get a lot better. And they said, well, it can't be that easy. And I said, well, we're only going to be able to answer this question by doing it, and we'll just do it for one day. So it's got a one day test to change because if it works, it's going to work immediately. And if it doesn't work, then you know we've lost nothing other than one day. <clears throat> um, so they sort of agreed to that, uh, but I said before we before we do this, um, I want to ask you to answer this question, which is if it, if this works, what will you do next? And they said, well, if it works, we'll we'll implement it. And I said, when when will you implement it? And they said in about yeah. three months' time, because all our <laughs> patients are, book, are booked in, all their chemo schedules are already scheduled now for three months. Yeah. And I said, okay, that's 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 perfectly reasonable. So we did the one day test of change. Um, I wasn't actually there at the time because I deliberately wasn't there because I didn't want to be influencing the process. You know, the, sure. um, and the chaos disappeared. Um, so I said, OK, one day test of change. Tomorrow you go back to the old way of doing it and we'll see what happens. And the chaos came back. So we had sort of like a crossover trial in a sense. And I said, okay, so we've done an intervention, the chaos goes away. We've taken out the intervention, the chaos comes back. What do you want to do now? You said if this worked, you'd change the schedules in three months' time. And they said, no, we've changed our mind about that. And I said, oh, oh dear. She said, no, we're doing it next week. Because mm. we're not gonna mm. we're not gonna put up with this for the next three months if we don't need to. And they did, and they they put the effort in to reschedule their their patients. It didn't take a lot of rescheduling, actually. And the so chaos stayed away it didn't it didn't come back it was really interesting 
So it, it sounds like you've created this simulation model. Is it something that you can take and apply it to another process? You know, that that you're trying to improve. Is it a a, a template per se? That yeah, I, I wish you I wish use it, this in yeah. in, in in the cancer center. But if you wanted to apply it to let's say flow from the ED yeah all the way through the hospital until the patient gets discharged. Yeah, the, the simulation model um, technology is, is just a tool, and it's it's a, yeah. it's a very sophisticated tool. Um, and one of the dangers is that like in surgery imagine you had someone said i've read i've read a book about heart surgery and i'm I'm really keen and i've got some rubber gloves and a knife um <laughs> so I, I feel i could probably make a pretty good job at this and you and i'd be saying i think you might need a bit more training than just a bit more than enthusiasm and a rubber glove and a knife and it's like it's very much like that so Simulation modeling technology is very powerful, but you need to know how to use it to do it properly because sure. it's very, very easy to to create problems doing it improperly. Anyway, the, t the tool, the tools are generic and you can apply them to anything. But that actually isn't the skill. The skill really is knowing how to um, map and measure a process in order to be able to build a model because it's very very easy to overcomplicate things to the point that you can't even model it yeah and that's that's i think where the, where the skill comes in and that takes just takes time to learn how to do and that, and that kind of leads me to my next question do you how important is it for you like you said to map out the process and to look at the the value-added steps versus the yeah. non-value-added steps do, do you do that when you're looking at a process yeah you have to start there so the, the process starts with mapping um, in fact, it goes, the sequence goes map, metal, um, measure, model, um, and then you can modify or you can design your modifications. So these are like designed experiments. Um, one of the first interventions we implement is um, extending the measurement so you can measure the impact of the change once you've made it. You don't, it's not just a shoot and forget process. And one of the advantages of modeling, you don't have to use computer models. It depends on the context. Some things are quite, you can do just with a piece of squared paper and a squeaky pen, mm -hmm. is you're making a prediction of what you expect the improvement or the change to be. And then you're comparing the actual change with the predicted change, which is called a validation test. Uh, and if you've, if you've done it well, you, sh you, you get pretty much what you predicted you'd get, um, which is very rewarding. Um, and then you move into the, f the last step, which is called the maintain step, which is you say, now we've got the improvement. We understand how this, we demonstrated, we understand how our process works and we've made the change and we've got the improvement. Now we can maintain that by building that into, for example, our standard work or standard operating procedures. So the, mod the modeling bit is just a, a one-off. You don't keep doing that. You don't need to keep doing that. It's a, it's a stepping stone. Yeah, I, I was gonna say, so, you know, the measurement, piece is really important and i guess that's that's why you know your engineering background comes in handy for me you know i, I was trained in, in physics we just assume everything's a sphere a perfect sphere you go from there across <laughs> yeah. the measure in a vacuum but you have your unique background in computer science and and you know as well as your medical training kind of puts you in a, in a unique situation where you're able to do that. Um, there's not that many health systems that have uh, that skill set embedded in it. Um, 
where you know, do you see that that changing? Do you see that more are using that sort of um, computer science and, and background in order to map these processes? Um, you know, we see a lot, you know, in the healthcare technology mm. space, development mm. of new software, et cetera, mm. but not as much on the system mm. engineering side um, mm. as I would expect. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I, I realize I'm, I'm unusual. I was very fortunate to have that background, um, but that is not typical. And, and expecting people to do two degrees in order to scale this up would be completely unreasonable. Yeah. Um, so what's, um, I think what, what's been challenging me for the past few years is the question is, can this proven method approach be um, taught to people who work within healthcare? so that the embedded capability within healthcare organizations can be developed to the point where it's applicable. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm mainly talking about not using computer simulation models. I'm talking about using, you know, the technology we have available, you know. And that's, re that's really interesting because what I've, what I've found is some relatively straightforward techniques, um, once taught to the people on the ground, they learn them really quickly and they can apply them and get really good results really quickly. Um, so while it may be necessary, or I think it will be necessary to have a number of what you would call healthcare systems engineer within a system, you don't need very many of them. You just need enough of them to do that sort of system level architecture, engineering, design stuff. Most of the actual work happens at the front line and the, the microsystem level using, you know, um, straightforward stuff. Yeah, and how much of your you know, process improvement is yeah. drawing on your computer science background versus your medical background? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I, it's, the medical background, um, it's about, I would say about 50-50, because what's interesting about the medical background is you have this very strong, I need to diagnose before I can treat. I need a diagnosis. Yeah. Um, I'm not just going to go with, oh, it's, it's a headache, therefore I'm going to give paracetamol, you know. I need to know what's causing the headache. So, on the but on the design side, um, because in engineering you're taught how to design something so it works right first time straight out of the box, you know what good looks like. So you know what good design looks like. So um, if you put those two together, you say, well, I'm looking at a process here which is behaving in such a way, and I can diagnose the design flaws here. I know what to look for. So the interventions are actually relatively few and relatively straightforward, but they're very focused rather than, oh, let's just try this and see what happens, which is a bit more like how, how traditional quality improvement works. Yeah. Well, we wouldn't do that with patients. We wouldn't go around saying, oh, I'm going to try out this, this operation on you that I've never done before, just to see if that improves your health. You know, we'd be quickly very quickly called up to you know, talk to a lawyer or somebody if we started doing that sort of thing. Yeah. When Simon, when you when you're looking at processes and mm. improving a process or a system, how talk to us about the importance of of recognizing waste and, and trying to remove waste. And I know there there's some yeah. non value added steps that we absolutely yeah. you can't you can't get rid of, but there there are yeah. many that yeah. we can get rid of. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's, that's, again, it's a really good, really good point. Um, I would, while I don't go on a, a waste hunt, I know that a poorly designed process will be wasteful, i.e. inefficient. 
So uh, for example, if, if a process is designed in such a way that errors can creep in quite easily, and you, you can imagine all the possible ways that can happen, those errors require effort to um, check for, detect, fix, and correct, which all requires resources, which is a form of waste. Um, in there's a lot of waste, and I mean wasted time, wasted effort created by poorly poor scheduling design. That's a really really common one. And in the um, the model we use, we actually there's, there's four steps in the model, and you go around them in sequence. You start off with safety. So the first question is, is the is the design issue fundamentally causing a safety problem? In which case that takes priority. Sure. The second question is actually not quality, it's flow. So the second question is, what are the flow issues? So um, like, like scheduling and capacity management and capacity design and variation. We don't do a lot of Q theory, but we use that principle. And then we do quality. And the last one which comes out is productivity or value for money. And we do it in that sequence. Um, but you always get all four. If you get the design right, you get all four. There's no trade-offs. You get it safer, more efficient, higher quality and better value for money all at the same time. So, so that's sort of like our, our, our um, holy grail, if you want to think about that. Well, well, Simon, I know I could talk to you all day about this. This is uh, <laughs> it's fascinating. Uh, we didn't even get into the, the theory of constraints or anything like that. that uh, another day. Another day. I would also like too. to talk about and bore HF about, but um, I, I really am interested. I, I wish I was better skilled at, um, at doing some of this complex data modeling. That that's something I would like to do. You know, what would you say to systems or others that are looking to develop um, this skill set more? How how can they go about uh, applying it or learning um, more? The system engineering has, has got a very well um, designed framework. It's a multi-level framework. And you don't start off as a system engineer, you start as what's called a component engineer. So you, you learn how to design and build and fix components of systems. And then you learn how to design and design components to work together. And the system engineering or integration engineering, as, as it's called, is sort of like a skill that you develop over time. Um, so I would I'd always recommend start with start with where you are and the quality improvement and lean and six sigma theory constraints and all those really well tried and tested techniques are a great foundation to build on but you need you need that foundation in place first before you can start to build the system engineering capability on top yeah you need to you need to start off reading uh what's the book with herbie in it jake have you read that oh book? the goal yeah the goal oh yeah yeah, the goal. yeah, yeah no, that's, that's, that's a good book yeah. yeah and the dice game the dice game is really 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 quite useful that one sure. i use that a lot nice well thanks again and and thank you everybody for listening to another episode of connecting the dots remember if you follow the link in the show notes you can redeem this episode for cme credit thank you simon it was a pleasure <laughs>